There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. One of the most intriguing and mysterious symbols to be found in Christianity and also in other religions is the symbol of the tree of life. Now, whether or not the tree of life was a literal existent tree or just a metaphorical symbol is really irrelevant because there are profound implications and profound imagery that is used that we can glean from and that we can learn from. Let's start with other religions, beginning with Buddhism. This Oriental religion has a very strong connection with this symbolism of the tree of life because Buddhists like it to something they call the tree of enlightenment, which is otherwise known as the Bodhi tree. That's B-O-D-H-I, also known as the bow tree. Supposedly, Siddhartha Gautama had been meditating for 49 days under the Bodhi tree. He left to begin the life of an ascetic at the age of 29. And about six years later, he had this experience under the Bodhi tree where supposedly he achieved enlightenment, which is otherwise known as nirvana. And thus Siddhartha became the Buddha. And the word Buddha means enlightened one. And so they have a reverence for that tree in that particular religion. Next is Islam you find the tree of immortality spoken of in the Quran. It is also alluded to in certain hadiths, which are considered sacred literature in Islam, but not to the degree of the Quran. Unlike the biblical account, the Quran mentions only one tree in the Garden of Eden, and that is the tree of life, which never decayed, and Allah commanded Adam and Eve not to partake of it. They were forbidden to partake of the tree of life. Muslims believe that when God created Adam and Eve, he told them to enjoy everything in the garden except that tree, and partaking of that tree was part of what resulted in the fall, according to Islam, much different than the biblical account. Now, in Judaism, we find something very unique, at least in the mystical offshoot of Judaism, which is known as Kabbalah. The tree of life in that, I would call it a new age outgrowth of Judaism, is an image of 10 spheres connected by 22 lines. And those 10 spheres represent something called sephirot, which are emanations that came forth from the Godhead which is known in Kabbalah as Insof, and that's E-I-N-S-O-F. And the emanations are Sephirot, which is S-E-F-I-R-O-T. 
And these are supposedly emanations of the nature of ultimate reality or the nature of God that resulted in different aspects of the creation. And when a person meditates on those emanations, then they are brought forth within the individual human being, resulting in spiritual maturity. Now, this whole concept of the tree of life in Kabbalah is found in the Kabbalistic text, Sefer Yetzirah, which is the book of formation, which was supposedly written by the great patriarch Abraham, which I find doubtful. And I believe it was probably written many hundreds of years later. That's Kabbalah, the offshoot of Judaism. Now let's go to Christianity. I am completely captivated by this message of the tree of life in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is mentioned 10 times, or at least the phrase tree of life is found 10 times in Scripture. Strangely, it's found three times in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, three times in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and four times in Proverbs, which is near the heart of the Bible, the center of the Bible. So this message, this revelation of the tree of life is the beginning and the end of something God is communicating in his word. And it is the heart of something God is doing in those he created to be in fellowship with forever. So this is very profound. Let's go to the first mention of the tree of life in the Bible, and that's Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree to grow, which is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are several things that really intrigue me about those two verses. First of all, God planted a garden. God stopped the lightning fast chain of events. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament. Let the dry land appear. Over and over, his commands resulted in instantaneous manifestation, but then he slowed it all down to plant a garden. And a garden is necessarily a place where things have to grow to produce fruits and flowers and blossoms. And that shows me something about the character of God, that God likes to see things instantly manifested by the spoken word, but he also likes to slow things down and watch them grow. There's something very enriching about that experience. Maybe that's why God doesn't save a person and turn that person instantly into a fully mature son or daughter of God with all the gifts of the Spirit manifesting in his or her life. But God plants a potential in individuals that come into a relationship with him to grow into a place of spiritual maturity. Because in a sense, we're God's garden now. In fact, he refers to us that way in the Song of Solomon. Also, verse 9 says, out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow, which is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God is not just a practical God that produced trees without regard to whether or not they were beautiful to look upon. 
Let's get the job done. Let's provide food for Adam and Eve. If that was his only motive, beauty would not have entered into the picture. But see, God has an aesthetic side to his nature where he appreciates beauty. And I believe that we should appreciate beauty as well, the beauty of his creation, the beauty of the Lord, the beautiful things that he can do in our lives. The tree of life was also in the midst of the Garden of Eden. So it was the central thing in the garden. The garden, in a sense, was a shrine that was emphasizing the tree in its midst. It was a showcase for the glory of the tree of life. Also, very close to the center was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I believe the tree of life was exactly in the center of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was very close, but not exactly there, because it's a counterfeit of what we really want. Why do I say that? Because on one level, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents religion, while the tree of life represents relationship with God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents religion because religion is the primary means by which human beings try to discern what is good and what is evil, what is acceptable behavior, what is unacceptable behavior, what is right doctrine and what is wrong doctrine. And they find that in religion, whether it's true religion or false religion, that's the go-to of all human beings or most human beings to try and find the right parameters for their lives. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil brings death. Religion by itself doesn't produce life, but relationship with God does produce life. And we're going to find out that really those two are very close, but they're not the same. They may be close to each other in one sense, but very distant from each other in another sense. Let's go to the next mention of the tree of life in Scripture, and that is Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. This was after the fall took place, Eve had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and instantly it was not an apple. The Bible never said it was an apple. I know you see that depicted all the time in various works of art and various expositions of the Word of God even mention it that way. But if it was an apple, why in the world are we still eating apples? And there's an old saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. If the apple was the cause of the fall of mankind. It should be an apple a day makes the doctor stay. No, it was some other kind of fruit. We don't know for sure what it was. But it says, after this took place and after Adam ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil also, God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. And I don't believe God was speaking mockingly I believe he was speaking matter-of-factly. The man has become like one of us to know good and evil, because up until that time, only God understood what evil would be comprised of if it ever entered into his universe. But now man, having been exposed to evil, also has that knowledge, and it's going to result ultimately in those who are redeemed in something good, not something bad. 
And now, God said, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And incidentally, the word Eden means delight because it was a delightful thing to walk with God. It was a delightful thing to know God, to commune with God to be made in the image of God, to have the gift of dominion from God. That was all such a delightsome experience. But then they were expelled from the Garden of Delight, the Garden of Eden, to a very miserable existence. Next, you find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, the third mention of the tree of life. So God drove out the man. He exiled Adam and Eve, and he placed cherubim, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I see two things implied there. First of all, the flaming sword and the cherubim were at the east of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life in the sense of keeping man from getting back to the tree of life. For what reason? I don't believe that it was because God was being harsh and mean and wrathful in preventing man from getting back to the tree of life because God knew if Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of the tree of life, they would live forever in a fallen state under the dominion of Satan, under the control of a lower nature that would keep them bound in corruption. So out of love, out of love, God kept them from getting back to the tree of life until his whole process of redemption could take place. Also, they were placed at the east of Eden. The flaming sword and the cherubim were at the east, not the west, north, or south. Why? Because the east is where the sun rises. The dawning of a new day is being subtly revealed by God. It was his way of saying, one day, I'm going to bring you back to this. And so the cherubim guarded the way back to the tree of life because one day man would be able to return. And the symbolism there is excellent because the flaming sword to me represents the word of God and the spirit of God. Where do I get that? In Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about putting on the whole armor of God and that section is completed when it says to take the sword, which is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, because it must be wielded by the Holy Spirit in your life. And when you get the word and the spirit working together, you can oppose all the enemies of the human race, all the things that are destructive to human beings, and you can overcome them with the sword of the Spirit. And then in Hebrews 4.12, it talks about a two-edged sword being the Word of God. Why does it have two edges? Because there's counterbalancing aspects to the Word, like commandments and promises, curses and blessings, Old Covenant and New Covenant. It's a two-edged sword. Strangely, God put a sword at the east of Eden before that weapon even existed in this world. There had never been a war. No ironsmith had ever created a sword for some soldier to fight with. But before human beings knew how to make those weapons, God symbolized what would be a weapon against the fallen state of mankind as a sword. 
and it was a flaming sword because the sword represents the word, the fire represents the spirit because our God is a consuming fire. In the upper room, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when you get the word of God as a sword and the fire commingled, you've got that dual influence that will lead us back to the delight of the Garden of Eden, which is partaking of the tree that grants eternal life. Praise God for that. Those are the three mentions of the tree of life in Genesis. And then, strangely, it's not mentioned again, not in Exodus, not in Leviticus, not in Numbers, not in Deuteronomy. All through the Old Testament, there's no mention of this most important object until you get to the book of Proverbs. Let's go there now. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13, it says, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. And then five verses later, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. So it's not those who experience wisdom and then fall away from it that are happy, but those who retain wisdom in their life. Wisdom is personified as a woman in the book of Proverbs. And it starts out in this passage, verse 13 through 18, saying, happy is the man who finds wisdom. You cannot be happy in life until you discover the wisdom of God. Until then, you are deceived, you are deluded, you are self-serving, you are confused, contaminated by sin, overrun by demonic influence. No one can be happy with that kind of environment in your life. But when you find the wisdom of God, it becomes a tree of life. Well, we finally have the definition of the tree, or at least a partial defining of what the tree represents. So you have the tree that caused the fall of mankind represented as knowledge, but you have the tree of life, which is the key to immortality, represented as wisdom. There's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is acquired information that we store away in our brains and our minds. And there are many human beings that have tremendous amounts of knowledge that have no wisdom when it comes to knowing what life is all about and how to come back into union with God. And so wisdom excels knowledge just as much as the sunlight of day excels the darkness of night. And she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, just like you would reach up and take hold of the fruit of a tree and then partake of that tree. So Jesus is the source of our wisdom. In a sense, Jesus is our tree of life because the Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that Christ has made unto us wisdom and we partake of him as the tree of life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And we partake of him by partaking of the fruit of his character, his love, his joy, his peace, his kindness, his humility. We learn of him. We assimilate that character into our lives, and that brings happiness. But it goes even deeper. Let's go to the next part of Proverbs that unveils a little bit more about this beautiful revelation. 
Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. So one of the wisest ways you can live is influencing other people toward the truth. And that's when you become a tree of life. So you become what you partake of. Jesus first is a tree of life to those who find him. You eat of his fruit. What you eat is what you become. You become a loving, joyful, humble, kind, generous-hearted person. And then you become a tree of life to others, and you win souls. You win them into the truth. You win them into a better way of living. You win them into this insight into how to find a relationship with God. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Because, see, when people eat of your fruit, they live forever. You tell them, just call on the name of Jesus, just receive him as Lord of your life, and you will live forever. They come to you and find immortality when they discover something the next verse in Proverbs reveals. It's Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4, that says, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. The King James Version says perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. A breach is like a broken place in a hedge that allows things to get through into a protected place. Well, if a person has perverse language, evil language, evil words, wicked ways of expressing himself or herself that just create a breach in their spirit and allows all kinds of ungodly, demonic, and carnal influences to stream in, corrupting that soul. Yes, but there's an opposite way to live. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. That's the main way you become a tree of life to other people. Isn't it a unique thing that if I were to stand up right now and stretch out my arms like a worshipful human being, I would look like a tree, a trunk with branches? I believe there's a reason for the connection between those two images. And when I talk and speak words of life and others begin to eat of the fruit of my life, love, joy, and peace, then they can find wholesomeness and wholeness in their lives. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, Proverbs 15, 4 says. Now let's go to Proverbs 13, verse 12, the fourth mention of the tree of life in the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when desire comes, it is a tree of life. Hope deferred. What does the word deferred mean? It means delayed. Well, this could mean something on a very fundamental level, like you may want to get a certain job, and when you get it, it's like a tree of life to you. It's a fulfillment, a source of happiness to you. Or it could be much wider in scope. It could spread across the whole history and future of the human race, going back to Genesis and going forward to Revelation. What was Eve's hope in the beginning? when she partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Her hope was to become like God. That's what the enemy enticed her with. You shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And the original word translated God there is Elohim, which is also translated God's lower G, lowercase G, over 200 times, but 
It's translated God, uppercase G, over 2,000 times. And I believe the proper rendering of that passage is you shall be as God, knowing goods and good and evil, because Eve couldn't have related to the idea of gods or multiple deities because she'd only met the one true and living God. Strangely, the enemy tempted her with something that God already wanted for her, but he provided a wrong path of getting there. Partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a way of getting to God-likeness in her thinking. He didn't tempt her with immorality. He didn't tempt her with drunkenness. He didn't tempt her with greed and things that people in this world are normally corrupted with. It was actually a root motive that was good. She wanted to be like God, but she listened to the wrong voice. The same is true with so many religions. There's millions of Hindus that want to be like God. They want to be godly, good human beings. There's millions of Muslims that want to be like God. They want to be like godly, good human beings. But they go the wrong path because they go the route of religion instead of connecting with the wisdom of God as revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. When desire comes, it is a tree of life. Listen, Jesus is referred to as the desire of all nations in the word of God. And when he comes back again, it will be the opening up of the opportunity to the entire human race, to those who have been redeemed out of that human race, to reclaim what was lost in the very beginning. When desire comes, it is a tree of life. Now let's go to the book of Revelation. The tree of life is mentioned three times in the book of Revelation, starting with chapter 2, verse 7. Let me read it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Praise God. So in the end, the tree of life is in the center of paradise, just like it was in the center of the Garden of Eden to begin with. So it's still the central thing, and it was the key to living forever. So the gift of eternal life is the most wonderful thing God has done for us, and it's the most wonderful thing he can do for any human being. No wonder the tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. But this is the concluding statement of a message to the church at Ephesus that you need to hear because it's going to give us insight into a different aspect of what the tree of life is. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That sounds like a tremendous church to me. Very zealous religious people. But then in verse 4 and 5, God says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. So they were very passionately religious, but they were no longer loving. 
And the thing that Jesus really wants to take us to is not religion, but relationship. It's not rigid rules, but love for God and love for people. Exemplified in the two great commandments, love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you remove love from the equation, you've got religion again. And religion is just the knowledge of good and evil. It turns people into being critical judges of other human beings instead of loving deliverers that carry God's power to change the lives of those they can influence. So love is associated with the tree of life, while rules and regulations are related to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's nothing wrong with rules and regulation, but don't make that your primary focus. The next mention of the tree of life is in Revelation chapter 22. First, we see John the Revelator giving us this amazing image of the river of life proceeding out of the throne of God. And then in verse 2, he says, in the midst of it, in the midst of this river, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bore 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In this final picture of the tree of life, we see the river flowing from God's throne, I believe, into the trunk of the tree. And the life-giving influence of the river is felt in the outgrowth, which is the leaves of the tree of life, which are for the healing of the nations. And maybe that's a reference to you and I that will bring healing to this world as God's king priests who will rule and reign with him in the messianic era to come. How amazing is that? But unlike most trees in this world, it bears fruit ceaselessly. There is no break. There's no winter. There's no time of nature caving in to death's influence. It's always bearing fruit because in eternity, we will always be experiencing joy and peace and love and the greatness of who God is and what he can do in our lives. Then the next reference is Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So in Genesis, they were expelled from the tree of life, from the garden of Eden. In the last chapter of the book of Revelation, we enter back into that place where we can partake of the tree that is the key to immortality. No wonder it was cherubim at the east of Eden guiding us back to this experience because cherubim are always seen in the innermost sanctuary of God. Cherubim are a high order of angels. You find them in Genesis. You find them uh, depicted on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, facing each other with the glory cloud in between on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was also called the Mercy Seat. Then in the Temple of Solomon, there were 15-foot-high cherubim, that were pointed outward as if they were guarding that holy sanctuary. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and 5, the cherubim are depicted in the holiest place of all, which is the very throne room of God. How amazing is that? Because cherubim are always in the innermost place of intimacy with God. And the cherubim are guiding us back to the tree of life, which is the most intimate place with God 
that could ever be attained or achieved or more correctly received because it's a gift from God. And I want to end with this, that the cherubim are not described in any one particular way in scripture. Sometimes they have six wings, sometimes four wings, sometimes two wings, sometimes they each cherubim has four faces all around. And then in other accounts, each cherubim has just one face. But there is a, a unifying factor, and that is the images of those faces. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, the cherubim each have four faces, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle, all the way around. In the book of Revelation, though, each one has a singular face, the face of a lion, the face of a calf, which is similar to the ox, the face of a man, and the face of a flying eagle. And so the animals that are depicted are always the chief of their particular species line. The eagle is the king of all birds. The lion is the king of wild beasts. The ox is the king of domesticated animals. And man is the king of them all, and all are a reflection of the king of kings himself, who has certain attributes like a lion full of authority, like an eagle high and lifted up, like an ox willing to serve and be in sacrifice for others as Jesus exemplified when he walked in the world. And that's something we're all called to as well, to take the image of God upon ourselves, which is what? The tree of life is all about, and there's much more to this mystery. So I would urge you to read these scriptures, go back over them yourself, study it out, and find out what it's like to partake of the tree of life in the highest symbolic sense. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.